0: Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include the non-QM space, my interview with Mignon Davis and Seth Sprague on the current servicing landscape, some Ginny May risk-based capital follow-up, and reaction to the Fed's rate hike yesterday. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. All eyes have been on the Federal Reserve this year, but for independent mortgage banks, the focus has been on maximizing production and minimizing overhead in the face of higher rates and decreasing margins. In fact, the ability to offer unique and relevant products has helped keep the lights on in many companies. One of these products is non-QM which will be discussed in a webinar today at 1 p.m. Eastern, hosted by Robbie Chrisman. Hey, that's me. (laughs) Webinar panelists will dive into strategies, compliance, how they are performing, and what the future looks like for non-QM. One other current concern in the industry is Ginnie Mae's single-family applicant and issuer financial eligibility requirements, which were announced last month and have caused consternation for Ginnie Mae issuers and potential issuers. Since Ginnie Mae announced the new capital rule last month, the prevailing thought has been that many independent mortgage banks will struggle with the new requirements. Concerns raised center on the capital tools implemented, why excess mortgage servicing rights are penalized, and unsecured debt. Ginnie Mae then started one-on-one talks with its issuer base over the agency's new eligibility requirements and updated standards on financial requirements, with parts set to take effect in September 2023. As a result, Ginnie Mae published a set of Frequently Asked Questions to address the inquiries received during the agency's one-on-one conversations with the industry since the updated minimum independent mortgage bank eligibility requirements were announced in August. Ginnie plans to focus issuer discussions on the reasons behind the new rules and the framework in place to support them. Since announcing these updated standards, Ginnie Mae has actively engaged with issuers and stakeholders who have questions, said Ginnie Mae's president, Alana McCargo. She continued saying, we are taking this opportunity to provide additional clarity around our approach. While the overwhelming majority of Ginnie May issuers are compliant with these requirements today, we will continue engaging with our issuers throughout the implementation period to ensure our program guidelines support a strong and vibrant source of housing finance liquidity. End quote. The FAQs can be found at robcrispin.com. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back onto the show Mignon Davis and Seth Sprague to talk about the current servicing landscape. Mignon has more than 14 years of experience in a variety of roles within the industry, including mortgage servicing, default servicing, and servicing quality control. She's worked various audit and compliance roles and has extensive experience in compliance, internal controls, risk assessment, and operational processes within the mortgage industry. She also has deep expertise in the operations of a mortgage company looking through the lens of risk and controls. Seth leads Richie May's Mortgage Banking Consulting Services practice. He also serves as a strategic leader for the entire Richie May suite of services, including profitability and operational reviews, strategic planning, mortgage servicing rights strategy, retain versus release, and cash flow optimization. Drawing on more than 25 years of mortgage banking and mortgage servicing experience, Seth has invaluable expertise and a holistic perspective on the intersection of policy with economic and market conditions and its impact on the mortgage ecosystem. Let's go ladies first. The first question is for Mignon, but you you can both answer. Mignon, I know you're out there completing servicer reviews for your subservicer oversight program, and it's a challenging time for many. What servicing operational issues and trends are you seeing out there?
1: We're noticing several trends in servicing today. The most pressing trend is in our testing of the CARES Act. We're still identifying instances where servicers assessed late fees or property inspection fees to loans during an active forbearance. Um, We're also noticing loans that are exiting COVID forbearances in a delinquent status, meaning the servicer didn't successfully get the borrower on an approved workout option. In some cases, borrowers may not respond to loss mitigation efforts, but servicers need to be proactive and make every effort to reach borrowers and offer loss mitigation options. The numbers of loans exiting COVID forbearances in a delinquent status should be low. Servicers need to pay close attention to these numbers. The CFPB has specifically mentioned this several times during the past year. Another trend that we see often is with loan boarding issues. Promissory notes and other critical documents are not provided to the servicer or loans are boarding with incorrect data such as grace period, late fee information. Also, bankruptcy loans, active bankruptcies that have payment change notices are not always t- timely filed with the court. Servicing transfer letters are not always sent 15 days prior to the effective date of the service transfer. Also, consumer complaints, servicers are not always responding within the allowable time frames. And the last trend that we see often is force placed insurance. St- uh, servicers struggled to get updated insurance information from borrowers and also from insurance agents, causing consumer complaints and causing force placed insurance on loans that shouldn't necessarily need force placed insurance. Another hot topic that I wanted to mention in the servicing industry right now is fair servicing. On March 16th of this year, the CFPB announced that they plan to examine servicers' decision making process to ensure that they are appropriately testing and monitoring for potential instances of illegal discrimination. The CFPB specifically noted that they will examine for discrimination in all areas of mortgage servicing, including collections, consumer reporting, and payment processing. CFPB examiners will be requiring servicers to follow their processes for assessing risks and discriminatory outcomes. And this includes documentation of customer demographics and the impact of products and fees on different demographic groups. More recently, the Federal Housing Finance Agency announced on August 10th that for Fannie and Freddie loans originating after March 1st, 2023, servicers will be required to maintain fair lending data elements in a queryable format for each mortgage loan. And this is if that information was obtained during the origination process. Now, the required elements that they need to collect are race, ethnicity, age, gender, and preferred language of the borrower. For servicing transfers, the prior servicer must deliver the fair lending data elements in a queryable format to the new servicer. And again, this is if that information is gathered during the origination process. Additionally, Fannie Mae will require that servicers certify that they are in compliance with these policies with each required submission of the lender record information, that Form 582. So the main hurdle here is that most servicers haven't previously collected borrower language preferences or borrower demographic information. Without this data, it's difficult, if not impossible, to test and monitor the decision-making process. So this is gonna be a critical focus for servicers over the next several months. Seth, do you have any comments?
2: I do, and as I hear you talk through all that stuff, Robbie knows where I'm going. The cost of servicing is going up um, and, and and the risks of compliance are going up. So those are two kind of the themes. Outside of what you talked about, the other theme that I continually hear um, on transfers is that you know the subservicers are still a little bit backlogged from the high level of activity in the first half of this year. So you know transfers are still occurring from uh, sales from earlier this year, and the issue that's probably more pressing for some independent mortgage companies, if and most of them are starting to kind of realize their escrow shortages, but. As the escrow analysis statements are getting ready for the new tax year, most borrowers are going to see pretty massive escrow shortages due to the high property values and the fact that tax rates are probably up. And so servicers need to be prepared for those escrow shortages that are going to occur and understand where they might have sort of clumpy data, right? They've got a lot of loans that all of a sudden in November are going to have a shortage or January or February next year and make the necessary cash uh, planning to make sure they can fund those advances. Remember, most subservicers provide you that servicing revenue, less their expenses, less advances. And in some cases, that could be a negative number for you, uh, depending on your escrow shortages.
0: Yes, Seth, I have a quick follow-up for you. So since the last time we spoke, mortgage rates have certainly gone up. You mentioned the cost of servicing has gone up you know, servicing was kind of the silver lining for a lot of people earlier this year. Hey, mortgage rates are up, servicing values are up. But it sounds like, you know, with things getting more expensive, it might not be so much the case anymore. What are you seeing out there?
2: Yeah, I I mean, we'll see in a couple of weeks as Q3 numbers come out. But I would say that that low coupon 3% MSRs that a lot of people kept, those values probably didn't increase much in the third quarter. They probably have tapped out as far as how high those values could get due to structural prepayment speeds and servicing costs, as you highlight. So that silver lining of servicing that's flown through the income statement for folks under fair value accounting for the first two quarters of this year probably isn't present in the third quarter. And that can certainly uh, change the P&L structure, um, given that originations this summer, as we all know, weren't as strong as expected.
0: Yeah, both of you mentioned a lot of Well, issues might be an overstatement, but but concerns for, for those in the servicing space. What are some examples of what folks are doing to deal with these issues?
1: I was on site last week with a subservicer, and recently they had their internal audit department conduct an audit for loss mitigation with a focus on fair servicing. They selected about 2,500 loss mitigation accounts and manually gathered Humda data for each loan and performed an analysis. They also regularly sample loss mitigation denials and do an ECOA fair servicing test. Also, this subservicer for language preferences they enhanced their servicing system to have the capability of tracking language preference down to the individual customer instead of just the loan level. They also rolled out a self-service option on their website for new customers. And as the customer enrolls in the self-service website, they select a language from a drop-down menu as part of that enrollment process. Also at loan boarding, they're gathering language preferences as well if the prior servicer has that information. And they've made all of this reportable. So they're able to generate reports on on all this information they're gathering. They also updated their website to to include Spanish, and they developed almost 60 call scripts that are in Spanish too, so that they're Uh, second language reps or or Spanish speaking representatives don't have to translate the scripts in their head, um, which is what they were doing previously. So, this makes it a lot smoother um, for those conversations. They also created a separate call campaign or several separate call campaigns for Spanish speakers. They Uh, also enhance their call monitoring QC function to ensure that agents are honoring that language preference to the customer. Have you seen anything else like that in the industry, Seth?
2: Uh, What I've seen is more on the financial side where folks are taking a look at the true cash flows that are either being generated from the servicing portfolio and assessing how much of their fixed cost are those subservice or those servicing revenues covering? And again, with that eye on potential escrow shortages, you know, some folks are, as I, as I always say, you know, they decide to exit servicing or sell large portions of their servicing portfolio, uh, particularly maybe on the Judy May side to maybe get in front of some of the new capital rules, which I know we're going to talk about, or, just to sort of stem the flow of potential advances, they're very becoming very cash centric in their strategies.
0: Now let's turn away from operations a bit and talk about the current financial landscape of servicing. Seth, I know we we mentioned the cost of servicing and servicing values, but what's going on out there?
2: <laughs> Good times in the servicing space. Now um, you know the new capital rules that have <laughs> been that, that have been issued by the FHFA and Ginny May are certainly creating, I would say, at a minimum confusion in some places, downright panic. Um, I I guess the challenge is, and and I've been on dozens of calls over the last several weeks uh, with clients and and with agencies and with the MBA on this, there's confusion. And and, and part of it is the fact that most independent mortgage bankers or non-banks just don't think about capital in the sense that these these rules, particularly from Ginny May, are being laid out. Um, The volatility of capital and its requirements, because most companies have their MSRs under fair value accounting, and that massive write-up, the MSR asset attracts capital when that asset gets larger, and it, it, it sheds capital when the asset gets smaller. And if you think about the cyclicality of originations and servicing, that capital requirement gets increased when originations decline and margins decline and is opposite when rates fall. And I think a lot of IMBs are really struggling with that capital requirement and how to manage their capital through the situation. Obviously risk-based capital is something the banks are very familiar with. I sadly am very familiar with risk-based capital calculations, but just confusion as to how to do the calculations out there so in the shameless plug department, Richie May has got a webinar um, next week on this. So info at richiemay.com if you're interested in signing up for that. But we've got a, a for our clients and and uh, and for the industry, we're going to be doing some training on that next week to try to walk people through these new capital calculations, particularly along the Judy May risk-based capital rules. So that in itself is creating some activity. With people maybe wanting to sell their Ginny Mays or sell servicing because they may think they're out of uh, ratio, but it's creating a lot more stress in times for the CFOs out there as they're trying to manage costs and manage revenues. Now we've thrown in a new capital rule for them that just isn't in their DNA.
0: Can you explain very quickly why this Ginny May RBC rule is causing so much consternation in the industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the quick answer is that the concept of risk-based capital or risk-weighted assets is something that's just not in the DNA of non-banks. Banks understand risk-weighted assets. Unless you've worked at a bank, it's sort of a foreign concept. And so as you as people are trying to take their balance sheet and, and apply it to these capital rules, there there's some confusion there. The other part that's confusing is that JMA has created yet a new definition of excess servicing in in the land of their risk-based capital, that excess servicing is MSRs that exceed the adjusted net worth. That's the definition of excess servicing. That's the third or fourth definition of excess servicing that exists in the industry, which is just creating confusion. And, and I'll just highlight one point, Robbie, and I know you're deep into the weeds as this as I am, but there's a real capital difference here between somebody who's got their MSRs under fair value accounting versus low-com low accounting. Because all these capital rules are written on the face of the MSR on the balance sheet. And if you're under low-com accounting, you actually have a, you're in an advantageous capital position with these new capital rules. Unfortunately, that election of fair value accounting is irrevocable. As I keep, as we keep changing capital rules and keep changing the way we wanna look at things, that irrevocable election to fair valueness on your MSR asset is creating now capital concerns on the back end, and I and I don't like it when capital rules change and I can't change something else that was a decision five or six years ago. So there's just a lot of stress and strain out there about you know one risk-based capital, risk-weighted assets, and this new definition of excess.
0: Well put. Although I would I would remind you that uh, not all of our listeners. Uh, retain servicing. So, for those that don't, why should they care about these trends and, and issues you're both seeing?
2: Well, they should get into servicing. No, just that's a joke. They shouldn't necessarily get into servicing without talking to us first. But um, <laughs> even if they're not in servicing, and many folks are not in servicing and p- particularly are not in servicing, but this is good. This potentially has ripple effects across the liquidity stack for Ginny Mae loans, in particular through the correspondent channel. If some of those correspondents are being adversely affected by these capital rules, we could see servicing values through the SRP service release premium come down in the market. We could create illiquidity at certain times where somebody may not be able to buy as many Ginnie Mae loans as they thought. So even if they're not in servicing and they're just an originator and there's nothing wrong with that business model, it can affect their profitability, it could affect their margins, and it could affect their liquidity. So I've actually had some several customers come to me and go, "Hey, is this a good time for actually to, for us to get our Ginny May ticket? Because we're concerned that some of the aggregators just may not be providing all the liquidity we need to support our production on the Ginny May platform." Um, and the answer is yes, no, and maybe, but we need to run the financials to understand that. So it's the liquidity that can affect the industry in general is is the issue, regardless of whether or not you have servicing.
0: Sounds like when my girlfriend asks me a question, the answer is always yes, no, and maybe.
2: <laughs> the answer, as you know, the answer is always it depends on the situation.
0: <laughs> yes, well put. So this question is for both of you. What can our listeners do today to be in a better position, both operationally and financially in regard to servicing?
1: The first thing servicers need to do is start developing methods to collect and report this demographic and language data on their customers. Uh, Customer service websites are a great way to accomplish this. And after they are able to gather this information, there are a few additional things that they're going to need to do. But that's definitely the first step. You have to have the information before you can do anything with it. So there are four things that they need to do once they have the information and they're able to establish some monitoring activities. The first thing would be to develop a fair lending or fair servicing monitoring program and and include in that program recent and planned future dates and a schedule for fair servicing related monitoring activities and testing. The second thing would be to document the frequency of monitoring activities, the party responsible for monitoring, the results of the last monitoring performed, and any corrective action taken. The third thing would be employee performance reviews. For customer service and collection personnel, servicers need to enhance their employee performance reviews and audits to include call monitoring and and focus on fair servicing. The fourth thing would be training. Servicers need to make sure personnel, especially consumer-facing personnel, are trained on how to treat borrowers fairly. And once they are able to train and monitor those employees, that will be a great way to show uh, due diligence on their part. Servicers also need to take steps for corrective action. If a fair lending violation is identified, the process for taking corrective action or the steps to mitigate risks need to be documented. They need to review reports for indications of weaknesses, repeat violations of law, and resulting risks or harm to consumers. That would all be critical steps in that process. Also, for our clients out there, um, lenders who don't who retain servicing, but don't perform the servicing in-house and they utilize a subservicer, they need to be asking their subservicer how they are going to respond to these new requirements. Are they collecting this data for language preferences and other demographic information for their borrowers or customers? How are they monitoring and testing the decision-making process? How are they evaluating fair servicing trends? Because ultimately, You know, the master servicer is responsible for whatever the subservicer does or doesn't do. So it's very important that these conversations are occurring between the master servicer and the subservicer.
2: From my standpoint, the first thing that people need to do is pause and take a deep breath. And the first thing they need to look at is regardless of whether or not they're in servicing is look who they are selling loans to and if those are they're selling to non-bank entities have that conversation about their ongoing liquidity and their plans for the new capital rules to ensure that they've got adequate liquidity for their loans that would include both conventional and government loans and make sure that they're having those counterparty that kind of reverse counterparty due diligence right are you really going to be a good partner for me and provide liquidity for me on these loans going forward and what is your plan around these capital rules? So that's if you're an originator. If you're a spe- specific servicer, again, looking at that cash situation, is it cash positive or negative? Do you understand where your escrow advances may be coming from over the next six to 12 months? And do you have adequate cash to cover it? Delinquencies, are you monitoring delinquency trends in your portfolio? And do you have adequate reserves to fund advances on TNI and PI if needed in the Ginny May space? And the final thing is probably attend the Richie May uh, webinar next week on the capital rules and these calculations. There's a lot of confusion out there. Understand the calculations. Understand what applies to you. If you don't have your Ginny May servicing ticket, then those Ginny May rules don't really apply to you, but they can apply to your counterparties. So really have a thorough understanding of how this new rules can impact you regardless of whether or not you have your Ginnie Mae servicing ticket is critical. Run the calculations as quickly as you can in today's financial statements. And also take a look at what they might look like in the future, depending on your growth plan. So you need to link your future growth plans with these capital rules to ensure ongoing compliance with those rules.
0: And for those that didn't hear, attend the Richie May webinar on capital rules and requirements next week. Uh, thank you both very much for your time. Appreciate it, and uh, hope to have you back on soon. Thanks, Robbie.
1: Thanks, Robbie.
2: Hey, hey, Robbie, just edit it down and make sure we get a nice shout out. The Bills are two and zero, and they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's it. <laughs>
0: I think they, aren't they the Vegas favorite and Josh Allen's the MVP favorite?
2: They are the fa- the favorite. And as a Bills fan, that makes me very nervous.
0: Yeah, if you lived through the Jim Kelly days. I, don't, I don't which, think, uh...
2: which I did.
0: U.S. Treasuries endured some volatility yesterday around the September FOMC decision as the Federal Reserve issued its fifth interest rate hike of 2022, another 75 basis points to 3% to 3.25%. Officials also updated their forecast, expecting the benchmark rate to rise to 4.4% by the year-end and 4.6% during 2023. The projections, which showed a steeper rate path than officials laid out at the start of summer, underlines the Fed's resolve to slow inflation despite the risk that higher borrowing costs could send the U.S. into recession. Chair Powell said during his press conference that this would not be the last rate hike. He also warned of a housing correction, said predictions for a soft landing were less likely, and added that potential MBS sales were not discussed during the FOMC meeting. What caused volatility in the bond markets was his reminder that the Fed isn't planning to rescue the market with a rate cut anytime in 2023. The futures market had previously priced in a potential cut into settlement sometime next year. Separately, Russian President Putin announced a partial mobilization of reservists, fueling speculation that the European Union and the United States will increase their involvement on the other side of the conflict. Treasury yields ended the trading day, declining from their opening levels. Despite higher rates leading to a moderation in the pace of growth in median selling prices, existing home sales decreased 0.4% month over month in August to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 4.80 million, above consensus estimates of 4.70 million versus an upwardly revised 4.82 million in July. August marks the seventh straight month that existing home sales have fallen, and total sales in August were down 19.9% from a year ago. Quote The housing sector is the most sensitive to and experiences the most immediate impacts from the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy changes, said NAR chief economist Lawrence Young. The softness in home sales reflects this year's escalating mortgage rates. Nonetheless, homeowners are doing well with near non-existent distressed property sales and home prices still higher than a year ago. End quote. Following yesterday's FOMC events, today is packed with more central bank decisions, including the Bank of Japan, SNB, Norge's Bank, and the Bank of England. But the U.S. calendar got underway with weekly jobless claims, which were unchanged at 213,000, and the Q2 current account balance, which registered in down $251.1 billion. Later this morning brings August leading indicators, Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey, September KC Fed manufacturing, and a treasury auction of $15 billion reopened 10-year tips. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worse by a quarter, and the 10-year yielding 3.57 after closing yesterday at 3.51%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Looking down sternly from the bench, the judge asked the defendant why, after a blameless six decades, she had turned to a life of crime. Your honor, I began working on my memoirs, she explained, and they were just too damn boring. (laughs) Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking.